for you, France may conjure up images of medieval cities, alpine villages, and Mediterranean beaches. Or maybe France is your culinary addiction. Who could blame you given the crunchy baguettes, the creamy fromage, and the elegant Grand Cru Bordeaux wines aging for decades in French oak until reaching peak exquisiteness, the grapes clustering from limestone-rich soil, ripening to... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is the wrong podcast. This is not my wine podcast. This is the transfer pricing podcast. Transfer pricing. It's easy to get detoured by French wines, but we're here to talk about transfer pricing. We're here to talk about transfer pricing. And while France may drive your senses into overload for tax executives these days, it drives blood into boiling mode thanks to its newly launched digital services tax. You'd have to be buried under the oak barrels to have missed President Macron's back and forth on France's 3% digital tax last year in the U.S.'s unthinkable retaliation, steep tariffs on incoming wine and cheese, among other imports. Obviously, it's the wine and cheese that hurts us the most. But again, back to this podcast. And while France's digital services tax may have been a scene stealer last year, there's way more to transfer pricing in France than defending the interests of the big five tech giants. And we're going to dive into all of it today. Who is we in this scenario? That's where the real excitement begins. Today, Terence Wilhelm, the managing partner at Cara Avocats in Lyon, is with us an attorney at law and a PhD in transfer pricing. Terrence has worked at Ernst & Young before opening his own firm, and he often writes about transfer pricing in France for elite publications like ME Tax. Welcome to The Fiona Show, Terrence. Thank you so much for being here. A quick note before we jump in, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. We'll plant three CPE code words in this episode. Send all three to The Fiona Show at xbs.ai. That's all one word, The Fiona Show at xbs.ai. AI, and we'll reply with your CPE certificate. That's it. Now on to transfer pricing. Here's how it's making headlines in the news. Even with COVID numbers still on the rise in some states, tax executives are already starting to think about post-COVID-19 transfer pricing. And the overwhelming consensus, if tax rates don't rise, count on more transfer pricing audits. And where is that auditable data coming from? Country by country reports, which tax executives think could be pushed in a public information direction thanks to the pandemic. Tax authorities will want to make up the revenue they lost to COVID-19, and multinational companies seem to be the go-to for that. Memories of the 2008 financial crisis still haunt CFOs. M&E execs are anticipating that tax authorities may be more aggressive than ever. Are they right? Are they wrong? Does it matter? I mean, you don't need a crystal ball to see the obvious. Tax challenges lie ahead. Many businesses will be reporting losses, and governments have the unenviable task of trying to do the impossible, make up for lost time. Gulp. If you're sick of us reporting on the now infamous Altera versus the IRS case, think about how we feel. For the better part of a year, we've been following every twist and turn in this drawn-out saga, which began in 1997 and may finally be over. A refresher, the IRS thought that Altera, which is owned by Intel, should have included stock-based compensation in a cost pool. And Altera thought, wrong, no need. With $80 billion on the line for Altera, not to mention billions for other tech companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Google, the case went to tax court in 2016 and the victory to Altera. 
we don't think so, seemed to be the mindset of the IRS, which took the case to the Ninth Circuit Court. And that's where things got even trickier. The Ninth Circuit had reversed the decision and decided with the IRS, but then withdrew its decision due to the death of Judge Reinhardt, who passed four months before the decision was published. Last year, the Ninth Court again sided with the IRS, which left the world wondering, and especially those tech companies, if Altero would appeal the case. Well, the nail-biting is over. Last week, the Supreme Court turned down Altero's request to review the case further, putting both the decision and our tiresome need to report on it to rest. The Australian tax office may be one of the world's strictest tax agencies, but even the ATO knows it will have to make concessions given the COVID-19 pandemic. In a June 19th statement, the office revealed that it will take COVID-19 into consideration so long as there is evidence that business changes, such as, quote, reductions in revenue, increased expenses, and changes to profit outcomes are due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The ATO may be aggressive, but it's not unreasonable. For instance, the organization recognized that the TNMM benchmarking may not reflect an arm's length transaction given the economic conditions. Such practical thinking. The ATO plans to look at what your revenue, costs, and profits would have been sans the coronavirus. The burden of proof, though, is on you, so bring it. The ATO will expect a detailed analysis explaining the difference between what was projected and what is. In speaking of explanations, the ATO wants to see the reasoning behind any increased cost allocation or reduction in sales. More leniency means more documents, more details, more explaining to do. Now there's the ATO we know and, uh, well, no. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-Border Solutions AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp so terrence just to start things off how did you get started in transfer pricing ah well good question that goes way back in time um actually i was still a student at the university uh studying law uh, i was in what uh, back in that time, what we used to call a DEA, you know, it's called a master degree, of course, it changed. Um, right. And my, my teacher suggested me to do a PhD 
because I performed quite well and only the, the best students get scholarships to get a PhD. I, I said no because I didn't want to spend like many, many years uh, at the library and preparing my PhD. But then he told me that there is an alternative would be to prepare some kind of, a, I would say, a practical or professional PhD, meaning that I could work in a law firm, for instance, and in parallel prepare a PhD uh, over a three-year period. I found it mm -hmm. quite interesting. And this is how I, I started the very first law firm I worked with uh, called Fidal. Back in that time, it was the, uh, the legal branch of KPMG. And because my studies were focusing on international taxation, I was quite interested in the, the, the effect uh, of EU laws on French taxation. I talked a bit about transfer pricing, and when I presented my notes and my thoughts to the lawyer I met at Fidel, he said, wow, that's quite interesting. You know what? We are launching a new department dedicated to transfer pricing. Do you want to be part of it? And I said, well, yeah, why not? And the, the, the funny thing is that <laughs> in, in my mind, transfer pricing to me was tax evasion, something very exotic. I, I, I don't know if you recall that movie with Tom Cruise. In, in French, it's called La Firme, so I don't know whether it's the proper word for the firm. I don't know. Right. Uh, it's an old movie where Tom Cruise, an attorney, works for a, for a big law firm in the US, and, and they, they do tax evasion, then he, he thinks it's not fair, etc. So I, I, thought, I thought it was exactly that. I, I'm familiar with the film, and I, I remember reading the book as a kid, and I, I actually have never made that. I w I've worked in transfer pricing all these years now, and I've never uh, quite made that connection. It, on this, by the same token, I, I mean, you know, from a from a authority perspective, and how things have even changed since Beps, which we'll get into. But it could just as easily be seen as the opposite, at least now. You're right. You're right. I mean, it's it's quite naive, but still, if you take any book dedicated to tax law in France, you will find transfer pricing in the chapter dedicated to tax evasion or the mm. fight the fight against tax evasion, and people still sit this way. And it is true that it's a very, very effective tool to transfer tax. I mean, let's face it, yes. But my experience shows that in 99% of cases, this is not how it is used. Transfer pricing is just tax translation of operational or, or business uh, operations, basically. Just to go back to your initial questions, how I started in transfer pricing, this is yet to make a, a long story short. That's how I ended up in the transfer pricing department from Fidel and then I joined Ernst Young because they were also building a strong department and I wanted to be part of it. I, I still had this entrepreneurial, I would say, mindset. So I wanted to be part of the erection of that team in Paris. Then I created a department in Lyon dedicated to the southeast part of France. A bit less than three years ago, I, I left Ernst Young to create this genuine law firm called CARA that is dedicated to transfer pricing and international tax. So basically, I started it in I started in two thousand and four. But it's very interesting how do you think? Would you characterize it as like tied into French culture, so to speak, or at least how French academics present transfer pricing that it's adjacent to tax evasion? It depends who you talk to, frankly. Right. If you ask most tax inspectors. Indeed, they will pretend transfer pricing is equal to tax evasion. And that's rather unfortunate, frankly speaking. They're not business-oriented. Let's put it this way. It's not like in most common law countries, the UK, the US, of course, and even Netherlands, actually, where tax inspectors, they have some insights as to how the economy really works. In France, they are, they are 
<laughs> sorry to say that, but they're, they're a bit narrow-minded. Right. And, and indeed, probably what they learn at school is to, uh, that transfer pricing is, is used as, as a tool to optimize taxation or to, to shift profit abroad. But even from that early point, 2004 or so, did you find something interesting about it that has, you know, carried you through all the way to 2020? That's a very good question, actually. Yeah, yeah that's something I need to highlight indeed because uh, I, I usually speak to students and I need to explain what I'm doing as an attorney because it's something that is still quite unknown even if you talk to students that want to do tax or even international tax don't really know much about transfer pricing. And yes, uh, this, this discipline indeed has evolved quite a lot, I must say, since I started working on that. Back in that time, I remember the, what was on the radar was you know, the usual uh, buy-sell type of activity or provision of management services, things like this. I mean, very classic type of topics. And today we are confronted to issues pertaining to digital services, interconnection between transfer pricing, VAT, custom duties, permanent establishment issues. That's, that's something that is very interesting, I think, and, and, and quite complex. And all these, to me, they all fall within this transfer pricing arena. I, I must say, my, my experience tends to show that a lot of firms, what we call transfer pricing boutiques, they focus on the compliance side of the discipline, being the preparation of transfer pricing documentation. But transfer pricing is much more than that. In fact, to me, it really encompasses the main bulk of the economy because most of transactions are performed in a cross-border environment and within that environment they are made between two related parties. So basically it's another way to say that I would say 80% of the economy, global economy is made through transfer pricing. Because of that, it's very contemporaneous, very hard to, to, to understand, to catch. And also there is always at least a two, I would say twofold way of saying the discipline. On the one hand, there is the party in the jurisdiction where you sit. And of course, there is the other party in the other jurisdiction. And for example, if that other jurisdiction is Brazil or India or the US or Japan, you need to think differently from one country to the other because the standards are different, because the culture is different. There are some countries, jurisdictions are very open-minded, very uh, business-friendly. Some others are not. So, so yeah, that's to me, frankly, it's within taxation and, and mostly within international tax arena this is probably the the most interesting and most complex discipline it evolves a lot we see it through the oecd we see it through european authorities commission for example uh, we see it through i would say parallel type of organization the un we tend to forget that one but the un also actively works on on transfer pricing so all this indeed makes the, the discipline very very interesting something we love to ask all of our guests here at the fiona show is what mistakes do you see multinational companies making over and over again when it comes to transfer pricing <laughs> yeah that's that's a very good point the very first i think of uh touches upon management services uh, it, it's quite funny because it's it's not a very complex topic, but still a lot of groups still charge huge amounts of management fees to uh, related parties without having consideration to how the cost base is calculated, what we call the benefit test. 
demonstrate that these services do provide some benefit to the recipients, uh, how these costs are allocated, etc. For a lot of groups and surprisingly even huge multinational enterprises, to them it is a given to just recharge you know, the, the, the full bulk of costs that the mother company bears and just recharge it to the rest of the group and okay, that does the trick. No, it's not that simple. I mean, we need to enter into, again, the detail of the cost being born, demonstrate that locally the affiliates were not in the capacity to eventually provide similar services in-house or eventually maybe they, they, they uh, get it from external service providers. So again, it's something very easy to manage. But believe me, I still have a lot of situations where I need to tell the group, guys, okay, even though you apply cost plus 5% and cost plus 5%, it's a universal safe harbor, yes. But before considering the cost plus five, you still need to consider the costs. And, and, and that's where most groups still fall with the clause <laughs> of, of tax administrations. I think that's a technical term, and, and we'll be using that going forward. But France is a member of the OECD, like many of our subjects of late. So interesting. So they are adding the right percentage to the cost for managerial services, but they're not making sure that the original costs are realistic. So yes, I can see how that would be a big mistake. How can we characterize the way that the country has adopted BEPS Action 13? Oh, well, our current regulation really replicates the uh, the Action 13, so it's a uh, it's a perfect copy and paste of uh, the Action 13, and to some extent, it's not that surprising because the guy you know that that uh, spearheads all those projects at the OECD, Pascal Saint-Amand, is a French guy and is a former uh, member of the uh, the French tax administration, so. It is quite logical that we really want to replicate what the OECD says because what the OECD says is what Pascal Saint-Amand says. And, and again, he's probably a good or a fair representative of the, the, the best members of the tax motion. And I, I'm saying the best members because, again, I really believe that Pascal Saint-Amand is business-oriented, business-friendly. He, he understands how things work. And I really do believe that the ideas that popped up uh, at the level of the OECDs the, the past few years are quite good and positive. Mm. So yeah, the, the, I mean, but having said that, it's one thing to say, yes, we do, in France, we do apply the OECD standards and recommendations, okay, but still it's, it's I mean, there are a lot of gray areas and those gray areas at some point, they are not really filled uh, properly by the French tax administration. For example, just to illustrate this, you know, the OECD, they tell you, okay, you have five methodologies you can pick the one you want or the most appropriate one, of course, as long as it makes sense. And the net margin, for example, may give you some thoughts, preliminary thoughts as to whether or not there is an arms length situation. But the French tax administration, on the contrary, they directly focus on net margin and they say, well, if you make operating costs, that's the demonstration that there's a transfer of profit. And that's a nonsense. That's not what the OECD says. And when you go to court, in uh, most instances, the judge will, will tell, no, you, Mr. Tax Inspector, you did not bring sufficient proof because there are so many aggregates in this net margin that you can't demonstrate that the losses are directly linked to transfer pricing. Maybe it's linked to something else. Again, yes, we, we replicate OECD guidelines, but within these guidelines, 
there is sufficient, I would say, flexibility, if I can put it this way, to enable the French tax administrations and, of course, then French tax practitioners alike to make their own mind. Right, right. But along with the three-tier documentation requirements, what are some unique requirements in France? They're not unique in the way that they're not genuine. Again, it's it's, right. uh, it's a good replica of the three-tiered approach, except that in France, there is an additional one, what we call the, the Form um, 2257. Uh, it's We can call it a light transpricing documentation report that applies to companies initially the exact same ones that are subject to transfer pricing documentation requirements, meaning those that exceed the threshold of 400 million euros on the turnover or gross assets on a standalone basis. Initially, so that applied to these, but it was changed a few years ago. I know this additional requirement applies to companies that exceed the threshold and set at 50 million euros or not 400 million. And basically, it takes the form of um, some kind of a big table where you need to fill and list intercompany transactions uh, the French entity enters into, the, the, the global amounts, uh, as long as it exceeds a threshold of 100,000 euros per category of transactions. So, for example, uh, tangible transactions, intangible transactions, service transactions, no matter the type of service uh, being provided. And this is quite, still today, it is still quite odd to use. For example, there is no clear-cut direction as to what do we mean by cost plus or TNMN, meaning that most people, they, they are confused by, for example, when you apply a net cost plus approach which technically speaking is a transactional net margin method using some kind of a cost plus profit level indicator. For most people, they think that qualifies for a cost plus. So, so they tick the box cost plus. And you see, for example, tax administration never really commented on that to say that, no, this is not a cost plus, this is a TNMM or something like this. So we still, every year, we need to use that specific form, even though we, we don't have much instructions in front of that. And frankly speaking, from me to you, I don't really see the, uh, the usefulness of that form. But just to interrupt very quickly for our first CPE code word, that word is photographs, as in there are a lot of opportunities for photographs in France, of course. Uh, France specifies a certain format for the master file. Information must be presented in five sections in a specific order. Does this differ at all from OECD recommendations? I know you were saying before that it's a pretty much a carbon copy. Yeah, that's a proper word indeed. Yeah, that's a carbon copy. You're right. Back in the time, some, some years ago, it was a bit different, but then it was amended uh, by a decree in France, and now it's, it's really similar to the Action 13. Uh, so basically, the format um, is, is, is described and listed in French law and also in the administrative doctrine, uh, meaning the, the instructions that are released by the uh, tax administration. But still, I mean, I, I do believe that you can change the order of the information contained in this master file and local file as long as you have all the information, no matter the way you present it. What the tax administration wants to see is who do you interact with, how this is calculated, and so on and so on. So it's not that rigid. Right. And uh, the master file also requires some details that aren't usually required in transfer pricing documentation. What are those details? 
Now, the format of the master file and local file in France changed a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago. But now it's a perfect carbon copy of the OECD guidelines. And the local file has three sections also mandated in a particular order. Can you tell us about those? Well, what I said about the master file still holds true for what pertains to a local file, meaning that, yes, there are the sections that are listed, but you can eventually flip from, from one to the other or, or change the order if you want. What is mandatory is just to provide all the information that are being listed. Basically, the, the local file, some people think, is an extract of the master file. This is not exactly the case. The master file is very descriptive. It provides general information in the group, even though it does provide some details uh, as well. For example, the details that pertain to all the R&D activities, for example, all the policies that uh, touch upon uh, intangibles and so on. One thing in this regard, it's quite odd that in the master file, informations are focused on intangible transactions, R&D activities and so on, financial transactions and services, but there is nothing about tangible flows, which still represent the main bulk of cross-border transactions, I believe. So it's, it is quite odd, maybe because tangible transactions are not very complex usually, and still, of course, we need to describe these as part of the local file, if there are some. But it's quite odd to see that as part of the transactions being described in great details in the master file, we skipped the tangible flows. Okay. And still, the local file, again, is not that descriptive anymore. It needs to provide clear-cut information and support to demonstrate that each intercommerce transactions do reflect arms and standards. For example, there is no references to benchmarking analysis in the master file, but of course they are in the local file. So it's a greater level of details in the local file and it's much more rigid. And just one thing also in this respect, because this is something that most people completely missed, but to me it is a very, very important point. In the previous French transfer pricing documentation requirements, benchmarking analysis were not mandatory. What was said in the French tax law and the, the, the administrative doctrine is that the taxpayer was supposed to provide a benchmarking analysis only if the methodologies being used required that. And of course, in, in some instances, for example, if you use a cost plus 5% to remunerate uh, management fees or low value adding services, for example, or those types of transactions, it's a nonsense to provide benchmark analysis because everybody knows that you fall within usual ranges. But still, as part of the new French transfer pricing documentation requirements, the one that replicates the OECD Action 13, it is no mandatory to provide such benchmarking analysis. And so to put it in other terms, there is a clear change or shift of the burden of proof from the French tax administration onto the taxpayer. Mm. And myself, I've seen situations where the taxpayer prepared benchmarking analysis and did not review these because they had these prepared by foreign law firms, for example, in India or, or I would say low-cost countries, for example. So they did not really pay attention as to the results of those benchmarking analysis. They integrated these as part of the, the transfer pricing local file because it is uh, an information that is mandatory and listed and then they provided it to french tax inspector french tax inspector said okay look this is your benchmarking analysis and you fall out of the range 
So I can use it as a proof that your transfer pricing does not reflect arms and standards. And again, the, the burden of proof that no lies on the French tax administration is much lighter because of that. And there's a clear shift of the burden of proof onto the taxpayer, even though the law has not changed. So to me, this is very, very awkward. I really want to, to bring that to court someday <laughs> if my clients are, are okay with it. Because right. to me, this is something that, that yeah, clearly changing the landscape and it is, it, it is not fair. Interesting. So you've noticed that the burden of proof has shifted from the tax authorities to the taxpayers. And is it also true that financial data must be available in an electronic format so French authorities can verify calculations? Yes, it is true. It is true. This is also part of a greater environment, if I can put it this way, applicable in France, where now you need to provide a high degree of, of details when it comes to analytical accounts and financial data, etc., etc. Basically, you really need to put the French tax administration in such a position to be able to play with the numbers and go very deep in the details and dig into the numbers so that's to eventually recalculate margins, prices, etc., etc. Mm. Back in the time, we used to print versions of Excel tables. We can't do it any longer. We need to provide, indeed, electronic files. Yes. That Go goes ahead. even beyond because it's not just electronic files in, in the way that you don't provide PDF uh, format, for example. We do need to provide, as, at some point, the uh, Excel uh, document so that the French tax administration can take over from, from there uh, and then, again, just uh, play with the numbers. We see often that, you know, no matter what the rules are on are on the books, the enforcement is a little bit more, shall we say, cherry picked. Given France's relationship to the OECD, we've kind of described it as a carbon copy of the OECD rules from here. What does that look like on the ground in terms of the enforcement? I'm glad you asked because indeed within this OECD world, we see countries and jurisdictions with very, very different mindsets. You mentioned Germany. That's one good example. We could quote the UK or the Netherlands, which are neighboring countries to France. And even though they clearly do not replicate the same mindset. So again, yes, France is an OECD country. It's a very active OECD member for sure. But having said that, there are standards which are, I would say, quite genuine. To France, and when I say France, I mean to the French tax administration, because again, French tax practitioners, at least <laughs> me, at least, I would say we're more open-minded, or at least we're ready to apply new concepts or new ways of thinking. We do need to think out of the box. And French tax inspector, I don't believe that this, they think the same way, and they tend to replicate the exact same concept as they did two, three, or maybe even five years ago. So before BEPS, before we even talked about BEPS. And this makes things very rigid because again, it's very, very hard to convince French tax inspector. They want to see positive net profits. Once they consider that the French entity is an affiliate, they consider that it is a limited risk type of entity. 
which is a nonsense. It's, it's not because you're an affiliate with a mother company abroad on top of your head that, that makes you a limited risk entity. You, you can indeed, for example, concentrate a lot of strategic functions on risks and very, very hard to convince tax inspectors in this regard because they consider most of French affiliates as limited risk entities. They expect finding positive net results, which again is another nonsense. And in that environment, they only apply or they usually only apply the transaction net margin method. And if you want to use, for example, the profit split method, which is a method that is, yes, quite complex to use for sure, but still it is a fair method and it, it's very modern, very contemporaneous. They tend to reject it because again, it's, they're not used to seeing such method in their own environment. There are some other things that I have experienced. The French tax administration is very reluctant to use. For example, the berry ratio. I remember a case where we thought that the berry ratio were adequate and the French tax inspector told us, frankly, guys, I don't know how to use it. So we will not accept it. Interesting. And Fiona, can you just refresh our memories? What is the Berry Ratio? Sure, Matt. The Berry Ratio is a profit level indicator that compares the gross profit to the operating expenses. A coefficient greater than one shows a company is profiting, less than one, it's losing money. The method is named after the American economist Charles Berry, who developed it. <laughs> That's not the way we can talk to French tax administration. I don't know if you are aware of that, but last year the French tax administration released guidelines, let's call it that way, in order to encourage fair relationships between taxpayers and the tax administration. Uh, because it is true that things would work best if indeed the two taxpayers and the tax administration were collaborating. So they did uh, release those principles last year, but still what we see on the ground is uh, the French tax administration is clearly not in a collaborative type of mindset with the taxpayers. They have their own ways of seeing things, and it's very, very hard to have them think otherwise. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. So despite the rules, the French tax authorities want things the way they want them and they expect taxpayers will go the extra distance to comply. Just to ask Fiona very quickly, Fiona, do the French tax authorities prefer any transfer pricing methodologies? The tax authorities accept the cup, resale price, and cost plus method. But if the tested party is French, then tax inspectors usually favor the TNMM. 
Okay, so Fiona mentioned a little bit in terms of preference for methodologies, but can you elaborate on whether French tax authorities have any other preferences in terms of transfer pricing methods? Well, the usual methods, again, um, the cap method, if applicable, that's, I mean, that could be used at least as a coverative method. The first reaction, again, in most instances is to use the TNMM because it's a very simple method to use, let's face it, and because at least you, you are sure that you can find rather decent comparable on databases. But still, that's today because of those tools that we're using, those publicly available databases, those they now compile many, many, many companies and many aggregates. So to me, it is now possible to use other methods like the cost plus, the real cost plus, I mean, resale price method as well. I mean, those methods that focus on the gross margin instead. And no, this is totally feasible, again, because we have many references available on databases. And I fail to understand why the tax administration is not more willing to refer to these methods instead and still focus almost directly on the TNMM method. So if I were to speak about statistics, I would say that Frankly, no. based on my experience, 75 or 80% of cases, the French tax administration is, is using a TNMM. And in a very small portion or the remaining 20%, they are using other methods. Profit split, it's very, very rare. Let's face so it. So quick note to self, stick to the TNMM when producing documentation for the French tax authorities. I, I think that's also the case overall uh, for the profit split. Split, but you wrote an article for M&E Tax about a court case that reached, quote, surprising conclusions. That's a quote from you uh, on the cost plus method. Can you tell us about some of those conclusions? Yeah, that's about the Labs France case. That's a very interesting case, you see, because we tend to believe that transfer pricing is a discipline that is mastered by economists only. That's the perfect demonstration that this is not that straightforward and it's not really the case. What I mean is that in that case, Labs France was bound by an intercompany agreement to its German mother company, I believe. At least it was a German-related entity. I don't recall whether it was a sister company or mother company, but it doesn't matter. In that agreement, Labs France committed to recharge all costs except direct taxes and potential withholding tax, but all the other costs to the German entity plus a 6% markup. Having said that, there are so many other taxes in France that do not fall within the ambit of direct tax or the direct tax category, and of course, that do not qualify for withholding tax. The question then arises as to whether Labs France are to recharge those taxes as part of the costs being recharged for the cost plus to the German entity. And that's what the French tax administration said. They said, yes, there is a specific tax in France called the CVAE. Basically, it's a local business tax. Let's call it that way. We're very ingenious in France to invent and create new taxes every year, unfortunately. <laughs> so they had to recharge this tax to Germany, which of course they did not because they figured that it was a direct tax. And the judge said, well, no, guys, this is not a direct tax. It's a bit something else. So yes, it should have been part of the cost base subject to the markup. But uh, in that environment, it is very odd because this tax the base of this tax is correlated to the profits being derived by the taxpayer. So the greater the cost base, 
the greater the base on which this tax will be levied. So if you integrate this tax into the cost base, there is some kind of a circular calculation because the tax will be then computed on itself, so to speak. So to me, it's very, very hard, but that teaches two things. First of all, is that again, the tax administration could be ingenious <laughs> in, very, in many ways, unfortunately. And that of course, it is a given that before entering into any transfer pricing project or assessment, you need to review the, the intercompany agreements. We tend to forget that France is a written law type of country and jurisdiction. It's not a common law jurisdiction. So what is written, it's very, very important. And even though it, it is an intercompany agreement, so one may suspect that this agreement does not perfectly reflect the interests of both parties, still, as long as they have signed this agreement, they are bound by this agreement. And if the agreement says you need to recharge I don't know, X percent as a markup, because I've seen that also in a situation where a taxpayer used to charge a huge markup and then they realized it was not arm's length. Still, the tax administration said, well, guys, in the agreement, it's written 20% as a markup. I expect you to charge 20% as a markup, no matter whether it is arm's length or not. But, but again, so it's very important to check first the agreements just to determine whether these are adequate or whether these create some turbulences in the arena of transfer pricing. And that was the case at hand. And again, what is very, very odd is that by doing so, the taxpayer now needs to pay a tax, the base of which is calculated with aggregates that also combine this tax. So again, it's very circular. Right, right. And uh, just to interrupt very quickly for our second CPE code word, that word is return. As in, if you go to France once, you will certainly want to return. Does France require local comparables? They don't require it per se. They do tend to require comparables for sure. As I was saying, now the benchmark analysis is mandatory as part of the local file which is new. I really want to stress it because, again, that's, that places the, the burden of proof onto the taxpayer and not the tax administration anymore. But having said that, you know, France tends to prefer French comparables, yes, as compared with European comparables. But there is a very interesting case law in that regard that is called Man, Camion et Bus. It was rendered against the group called Man, whether you are aware of, of that one. It's a manufacturer of trucks and lorry. It's a competitor of mm -hmm. Renault Truck, which is a huge player of the market in France. And of course, it's a, it's a French, um, French truck manufacturer. Mm. And basically, what was said as part of this um, case law is that surprisingly, <laughs> for once, the French tax administration used a pan-European benchmarking study. And the judge said, well, the comparables are not fair and adequate because the market in France is led by one player called Renault, this, uh, this French group. Mm -hmm. So if you capture European comparables, the pan-European comparables, you will not capture the impact of that French player. And you would if, if you had chosen French comparables only. So there is this case law that tends to advocate for the use of French comparables rather than foreign comparables. But again, on many, many markets and industries, there are no so many French references. So it is possible to use pan-European comparables instead. And the French tax administration will not reject it as long as you are able to demonstrate 
that such reference to say German, UK, uh, Dutch comparables is fair. What tends to complicate things, for example, is when we use pan-European comparables, and as part of these, you will find comparables in Poland, Romania, or Eastern Europe as a whole. In that regard, it is quite tough to pretend that those markets are comparable to the French market, for example, or to Western Europe, um, at least, because those markets are, are quite immature as compared to the others. So even though you can use, again, European comparables, my opinion at least would be to then focus on the Western European comparables. Right. And uh, multi-year testing being preferred. But in 2009, 54,000 tax audits took place in France, up 8% as compared to 2018, generating 9 billion euros of taxes, up 16.3% after several years of decline. Uh, what is the likelihood of a transfer pricing audit in France now? Maybe we should put that in, quote unquote, normal times, COVID-19 notwithstanding, in, in at least the initial answer. Well, the likelihood to me is very high. Very, very high. Back in the time, we thought that transfer pricing was a discipline that was only that only concerned very big group, big companies. And it's no longer the case. Very small groups, of course, they fall within the arena of transfer pricing. And because of that, French tax inspectors, French tax administration, tend to, to, to put them or place them on the radar of their audit. They know that transfer pricing is a gray area. Because of that, they know that there is always something uh, to, to, to get or to adjust at the end of the audit. And that is why, indeed, transfer pricing, they are highly scrutinized by the French tax administration. And unfortunately, in that environment, all tax inspectors, they are not very familiar with the transfer pricing disciplines and with the standards that come with it. Most tax inspectors in France, let's face it, they don't even speak English. Well, fair English, I would say. They are not familiar with it. So when we provide them with master file or local files written in English language, for example, then they tend to request a translation, which is very burdensome, cost-consuming, time-consuming. So to respond to your question, likelihood, again, is very, very high. And then the likelihood for adjustment that is correlated to the question, the likelihood is also very high, unfortunately. Right, right, right. And it, it, at least for the time being, uh, given COVID-19, audits have been put on hold as, as a response to the pandemic. Yes, that, that is true. I don't know from me to you what will be the future behavior of the French tax administration. On the one hand, one may expect them to be much more flexible because the economy has been just bleeding out, let's face it, and, and, and a lot of taxpayers, they still need to recover from this uh, crisis. Mm -hmm. And it will take probably years before they do. So eventually one may expect the French tax administration to be quite flexible, friendly. And on the other hand, in the treasury, they need to recover more money than before because we need to pay for all those things and subsidies everything that has been done during the uh, COVID crisis. And as a response to that, maybe the French tax administration will be even more eager to target international, uh, multinational enterprises. 
and then focus even more than before on transfer pricing. And in speaking of COVID, in April, Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire announced plans to block companies and tax havens from receiving state aid for the coronavirus. Of course, he was referring to the 110 billion euro rescue package. Uh, while the EU Commission didn't agree with it, what does a move like this tell us about France's position on base erosion and profit shifting? You see, it's perfect echo of the French mindset. Again, they, they want to fight against tax evasion, and then they make shortcuts when it comes to international taxation. So they want to concentrate the subsidies in France, which to some extent is quite fair, yes, but then forbidding the benefits of those subsidies to groups that may eventually have some interest in, in low tax jurisdictions, that's a nonsense. First of all, because as compared to France, a lot of countries are low tax jurisdictions. Let's face it. And also second, because I've got several clients in that situation, there are groups that have interests in, for example, Dubai or, or in some countries in Africa or whatever, Middle East or you name it. But they have real operations going on there. So it's not a, about the uh, tax rate they are submitted to in those jurisdictions. It's about the absence of substance that there might be there. And in many, many cases, there is substance in those jurisdictions. So it's not fair at all right. to deny the benefit of those subjects and grants yes, to those entities. But again, that really tells how much France is eager to fight against low tax jurisdictions. And they want to keep as much as possible the um, the money, the results in France. And are any industries targeted in terms of transfer pricing audits? Well, all the companies that engage in digital services, for sure, you're certainly aware of this, uh, what we call the GAFA tax, digital tax. Uh, so, of course, these are on the radar. But apart from these, I would say could be now pharmaceutical industry as a whole. I've seen cases even before the COVID crisis where um, players in the pharmaceutical industry were facing quite harsh transfer pricing audits. Maybe after the COVID crisis, this will be even more the case because they will derive a huge amount of money. So the question will arise as to where that money should be taxed. Apart from that, no, I would say that all sectors, all industries are under attack. Yeah. Right, right, right. Full court press, as they say in basketball. But financial transactions with Luxembourg, is this a feature of tax enforcement in France? Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's a very good question. You're right, that as part of those industries, again, there is no one single industry that is being under attack by the French tax administration. So all industries are, are under audit. But as part of these audits, you're right, there are some transactions that attract even more attention than, than others. Previously, I was talking about the management fee service type of transaction. Again, that's it's an easy topic. That's an area where French tax administration knows they can eventually get some money out of a tax adjustment. But apart from that, you're right, no key transactions that are highly scrutinized, there are financial transactions, cash pool into company transactions, guarantees, implicit or explicit guarantees, and also all the transactions that pertain to intangible property, licensing, you know, everything that deals with IP box, patent box, et cetera, et cetera. 
And just to interrupt very quickly, our third CPE code word is fashion, as in France is known for fashion and is always in fashion. The digital services tax has gained a lot of attention for France. First, it seemed like it was in a hurry to launch. And now, while the tax is in effect, France isn't collecting until the end of the year. Can you tell us about the tax and anything that may have led to it? <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's a funny story. I mean, um, the reality is that France wanted to use that tax for political reasons. They wanted to show people that the new government and the new president, Emmanuel Macron, they are very harsh on foreign groups using digital services as a leverage to avoid taxation. That's very dogmatic, but that's what they wanted to, to show to French citizens and the rest of the world. But we knew as tax practitioners, when that tax was created, uh, released, that it was a complete nonsense. The tax base is, is very small. Uh, the results will be very small as well, as you mentioned, the, the profits that will be the taxable profits, sorry, that will be caught as part of, of that new tax are quite small as compared to the magnitude of the industry at stake. So to me, I do believe that this tax was launched way too early. But again, it was for political reasons. And most certainly that this tax will evolve in the near future because it will need to align with what neighboring countries will enact as well with what the eu will say in this regard it will certainly circle back with the us at some points uh, maybe with the next president who knows so it is something that will clearly evolve again and change in the coming years Indeed. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Thank you so much for being with us, Terrence, at least so far. We're coming to the end here, and this has been a really great discussion. But before we wrap, we have time for my favorite part of the show, and it's called What We Want to Know. We take a transfer pricing expert, that's you, Terrence, and put them in the hot seat for a rapid-fire round of questions. I love this. Are you ready is question one. All right, go ahead. <laughs> here we go. Uh, what management strategy would you say you lean on most? Wow, that's a tricky question. Uh, yes, 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 I do, of course. I spent most of my careers within big four type of firms. Uh, so I've, I've witnessed a specific way of managing people. I don't really believe it is the, uh, the perfect way of managing people. The people I work with today, uh, the clients 
and the people that are part of the firm, they want to spend time with their lawyer, um, me in the case at hand. <laughs> so uh, basically, yeah, wait, I, I really believe that the good management today would be a management that would reject lots of processes this culture of process you know that that we see in many uh, mm. big groups big law firms and stuff like that to me this is something that is very very uh, time consuming and exhausting and mm. so myself for example i rejected the uh, computation of time spent by uh, the people i work with because i just want them to focus on on, on the clients on and on the project and don't tell me okay that's week i spent x number of hours on that project or this other one and so on and so on i have no interest in that i, I just want you know the work to be well done and i want the client to be happy and for that yeah we need to dedicate a lot of time and, and not frame that time in a, in a reduced right, right. limit or time frame yeah a, a dogmatic sense of we have to do this whether or not it makes sense to do it and for question three how do you handle your most stressful moments we tend to call these your uh it's an english expression but your shit hit the fan moments yeah. okay well i drink a lot <laughs> no, 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 i'm just kidding <laughs> it is france no i'm kidding i'm kidding <laughs> yeah right right good point no 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 just, just cut it um well you know, that's like, Unfortunately, I still don't have the perfect response to that because it is a very stressful environment and, and being his own boss is even more stressful in the environment that we know with the COVID crisis and so on. And there is a lot of pressure on, on us. It is a very yeah, stressful environment and, and, and stressful job for sure. How do I handle that? I just try not to think about it basically. I'm just focusing on the fact that I know I'm doing my job well, and I know that my clients are happy. So finally, okay, I'm, I'm enduring a lot of stress, but it's worth it because I, I don't understand that what I'm doing has some purpose, has some meaning. But yeah, unfortunately, apart from that, I mean, I know it's a very, very easy response because again, no, I don't have the perfect solution. I'm not doing yoga or something like this. I mean, so, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what to respond to that. I mean, yeah, it's very, very important still. So, yeah, that, that is one of those pieces of, of a response. But I think it's very important to maintain a fair balance between your professional life, your job, and, and your personal life. And you need to, again, you need to spend time with other people, with friends and so on. And most of my clients actually have become good friends of mine. And then I spend more time with them, you know, having lunch or dinners or whatever. And that is also a way of releasing some stress because even though we speak about the project we're working on, still it's, it's in a friendly environment and that eases things a lot. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. In, in in terms of, I'll say, even the culture at Cross-Border Solutions, there is a contingent, and I've been a part of this contingent at other places in the past, of, like, we are at dinner right now, leave work at work. And that's that's nice, but um, I think there's an even larger contingent at Cross-Border where they'll just get into it and keep going. When I created the firm, Cal, one of the very first thing I did is to take uh, three seats at the what we call the Lou, it's the uh, the rugby team in Lyon. They are performing quite well, and rugby is um, it's, it's not of course the number one sport in France, but it's still it's getting more and more popular. 
And uh, with these three seats, usually for each game, I take two clients of mine or, or friends of mine or prospects, basically. And we go to rugby game and we're having a few beers. That really reinforces relationships. Again, that's very, very important. So people might think that in doing so, because the games, they occur or take place during the weekends, in doing so, you know, I, I, I'm always at work. But when you are your own boss, you are always at work. That's a given. But having some, you know, fun times with prospects and, and, and clients like this, to me, this is key. I do believe I am the only one in Lyon doing that as an attorney. And frankly speaking, so far, all the returns of experience that, that I had, all the inputs from the clients and so on, they were all so happy to spend that time with me and we had so much fun that I really believe that it's key to maintain good relations. And, and you know, the opportunities you have to have fun, don't forget, you may not get another chance anytime soon for the rest of the week. So might as well take advantage of the opportunities in front of you for leisure, even uh, even where sometimes it might mix with business. I think this takes after uh, a Rod Stewart song, but what do you know now that you wish you knew at the start of your career? Wow. Uh, that's almost a philosophical question. Um, Rod Stewart was a, a noted philosopher. I, I, I would say the numbers of the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> that is my favorite answer I've ever heard to that question. Uh, if you have any serious takes, I am here for it. But that, that, is re- that, is the, that is the cleverest response I've ever heard to that question. <laughs> No, actually, no, 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 no. To yeah, to to be to be serious about that. No, what I would like to know, wish I I knew at that time. It it, it is true that economic discipline is very integrated with the transfer pricing discipline, and as a tax attorney, it is true I'm not very familiar with you know those methods and stuff that economists use in the day to day job. So probably, yes, I believe I would be a better transfer pricing practitioner today if at first someone had taught me all those, you know, economist tricks or or methods and and, and standards. Right, right. And and for our last question in this personal round, people define success in different ways. What's your definition? I would say success is the capacity not to replicate the mistakes that you have made previously. I like that. That's yeah, good. I, I do too. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're all going to make mistakes, but real success is, you know, really applying yourself and correcting whatever, whatever those are. Yeah, no, keep, keep that one. Yeah, keep that yeah. one. Actually, no, no, I really believe in that. That, that was a good success take. Success is, yeah, the <laughs> not to replicate the same errors again and again. Yeah. You know, I'm listening to a lot of um, American guys. They, they, yeah, these are motivational speeches given by guys called, well, for example, Les Brown, you know, some other American guys, Anthony Robbins. I've read one of his, of his book. So these are guys that yeah, basically give motivational speeches. And, and yeah, that's something that they tend to say is that, okay, you, you know that you're a better person if indeed you learn from your mistakes and you're capable of not doing these mistakes again. So yeah, that's a fair definition of success, I think. 
Amen to that. That's Terrence Wilhelm, everyone. Want to hear more from him about transfer pricing in France? Look for his articles on M&E Tax. Want to hear more from us about transfer pricing everywhere? Subscribe to The Fiona Show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and we'll give you the transfer pricing lowdown every week. While you're at it, subscribe to our sister podcast, The Fiona Show Hot Off the Press, and we'll pick apart the transfer pricing headlines for you every week. I'm Matthew DeMello, and I host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Our executive producer, Marilyn Mitchum-Strom, writes our scripts. And that's all she's written for today. But rest assured, there's always more to say on transfer pricing. And we'll be saying it right here next week on The Fiona Show. We'll catch you then. Mm